Hello, and welcome to the Compassionate Leadership Interview. I'm Chris Whited, and my guest today is Aureel Majumda, coach, teacher, thinker, speaker, and poet. If you're on Instagram, you can find her at Aureel, that's A-U-R-I-E-L. Aureel, welcome. Thanks, Chris. Nice to be here. Now, you've already been on the BBC's Naked podcast, from which I know that you have a belly button piercing and your piff-go-go-go sounds like it could have been just the thing for my shoulder length. <laughs> uh, um, also, artists out there might want to bear in mind that Aureel is still looking for someone to paint her in the nude. I am. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> be careful what you say on podcasts is my learning from that. So that's quite a portfolio career that you've got there, Aureel. Do you want to tell us a little more about it? Yes, I think I've always um, I've always followed my interest really and followed my heart to a certain extent. And uh, so I had, I suppose, what you would call quite a, a straightforward, high-level senior manager kind of job at the local authority here in Sheffield uh, until, I suppose, really fairly recently. So I left there in 2012. And following that, I, I set up my own coaching business. So what happened to me was I was... Um, I was pootling along, being a head of business development at the city council, uh, directly reporting into the deputy chief exec, as was, and then when she retired into the chief exec, uh, John, who's still there. And I was sent on this leadership program, which I really didn't want to do. And I've told this story a few times, but it always, it always, it's like I'm telling it about somebody else now, actually, because I feel so different to that person. But I was so I was coming up to fifty, so I was in my late forties. And my boss said to me, uh, you really need to think about your development. Um, and I think she thought I was younger than I was. So she said, oh, you need to do an MBA. And I thought, no, I really don't need to do an MBA. So I was filled with horror. Anyway, I went away and had a look and then thought, no, do you know what? Maybe I do need to go back and study at this level because I hadn't studied since the 80s. Uh, so I went back into my next meeting with her and said, um, well, yeah, I suppose I could think about master's level except maybe I'm a bit old. And she said, what do you mean? And I said, well, you know, I'm 48 now. And she went, what? Oh, I thought you were in your 30s. Yeah, don't don't worry about the MBA. <laughs> so that made me really determined. Anyway, she said, well, instead of doing that, what we'll do is send you on this city region leadership programme, which was being established then, uh, which the idea was that it would develop leadership capacity across the city region, um, multi-agency. So it was uh, had people on it from the police, the fire, uh, fire service, uh, health service, some private sector people and some third sector people. And I resisted. I was kicking and screaming, didn't want to do it because I thought it would be full of young hotshots and they would all know more than I did. Um, and, you know, so I just didn't want to do it. Anyway, I got there. Lo and behold, I had something interesting to say. People were listening to me, um, expressing interest in what I had to say. And I really loved it. And I loved the intellectual challenge of writing assignments at that level. But the, but the significant thing is that I had a coach as part of this. So I had all the classic um, preconceptions, if you like, of what coaching was. So I thought it was remedial, uh, it was to uh, sort out poor performers, all of that stuff. So I really didn't want to do... It, it is my style to resist. So, um, so I resisted that uh, until I had my very first coaching session with a woman called Liz Merrick, who uh, anybody who knows about coaching will know she was the president of the EMCC until fairly recently. 
uh, when she retired from the post. That's um, the European Mentoring and Coaching yes, Council. Yes, forgive my acronym. So yes, that's the kind of one of, we're not a regulated industry, but it's, I guess, one of the kind of uh, quasi-regulatory bodies. So it oversees standards and uh, quality of coaching. Um, and I'm a proud member of that. Anyway, Liz, Liz turned up as my coach on this leadership program. And within the first session, I was just literally blown away. Talk about an epiphany. I just kind of went, oh, wow, what's this stuff? It's amazing. So fairly quickly after the leadership, uh, that was a postgraduate certificate. So fairly after, soon after I'd finished that, I'd had such a good experience on it and discovered this thing called coaching that I thought I'm going to go and do a master's in it, having not studied since the 80s. So I went and did that and just absolutely loved it. And did that classic thing that people do, which is they kind of halfway through a program, they they leave their job because <laughs> they're doing loads of reflection on why they hate their job so much. So I left, and I mean, this is a long answer to a question about portfolio career. But anyway, I left this very steady, um, high paid suit kind of job and developed this portfolio career where I just started doing, you know, it was a huge sense of liberation to me to come out of the, the suit and come out of the town hall and actually be able to do what I wanted to do which was coaching so I just completely fell hook line and sinker for it and just started coaching so from nothing really and and I'm not a complicated thinker so what happened to me was I decided it was no longer tenable to stay at the job it was when the acts had started to fall when austerity measures were coming in uh, so it was hard you know I'd cut a really significant budget by two-thirds by the time I'd left um, and we were just starting to get into forced redundancies and uh, some really painful things and I just didn't have the heart to do it anymore. And meanwhile, I discovered this thing that was about helping people flourish and um, empower themselves. And, you know, so there was a real kind of tension between those two experiences. And I followed the light and went went towards coaching. And so suddenly I was kind of choosing the bits of work. I was very, very fortunate in that I had worked right from the beginning. But my thought process was, what do I know how to do? Well, I've managed some really big change programs and I'm good with people. And now I know a bit about coaching because I'm doing this master's. So I just set up as a coach, like just like that. I'm just going to set up as a coach and 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 had clients right from the beginning, which was more uh, fluke, I think, than anything else. But it, it's just built. But now um, I'm kind of handy, really. So I can do all sorts, you know, I can do all sorts of different things. Um, so I, I work with loads and loads of different organisations all over the country, picking and choosing. But, but for me, the choices are around the value that I can add. Um, so it. It's really great not to be driven by them. I mean, I need the money, don't get me wrong, but uh, you know, I need to make a living. But but to be able to be drawn by impacts and the difference that I can make and how I can ha- kind of cut through uh, some of the bullshit, excuse my language, but some of the, the stuff that happens in organisations that's quite toxic or complicated that stops people um, thinking clearly. And, and my skill seems to be able to step in there and help people take a take a moment take mm. a breath and think about where they want to go to so in that sense it's a portfolio because I do a bit of this and a bit of that um but it all has this unifying thread to me about creating space for people to do great thinking and reflection and connect with their values so whether it's coaching one-to-one whether it's consulting into an organization whether it's teaching a room of people so that's a fairly new uh, string to my bow is that I was invited to go back into the masters and and start to help with um we do this thing where we observe people practice so you give them feedback about how they how they're going on and where they could improve and I really took to that and then I sort of inched into doing a bit of teaching of um some of the theory and and then I applied for a job and got it because I'm doing my PhD and I wanted to be in an in a university while I was doing it just to be in a research community really and then 
then teaching became this whole new thing that I'm in love with. So there's a kind of story of falling in love with these new things. But teaching feels like that to me. It feels like a community of practice, like to sit in, a, as you know, we sit in a circle in the uh, in the course that I run. So we're, we're all practitioners. So as um, David Meganson, who's one of the le- leading lights in coaching and was the prophet at Hallam when I did the course, he says... Um, even when you're practicing the violin, you're still playing the violin. And I always say to my students, even when we're practicing coaching, we're still coaching. So to have have that room of people learning those skills and hold space for them while they do their reflections feels like the same work. Yeah, you know. So I'm that person that can say, okay, it I'd, it's something about encouraging people and helping them relax so that they're in a place where they can suddenly see new options and new um, new possibilities. That's where I'm at. So when you make this huge career transition, or, or, or it would have been huge for most of us, was liberated your only feeling, or w- were there moments of self-doubt or other emotions involved? Yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of liberating in retrospect. When I look back, I go, wow, who was that woman and who's this woman now? You know, the, the two are like two different people. But there was a lot, lot of uh, trepidation in that, definitely. And it, in a way, I was... You know, they were very dark times, and I think anybody who was around in, certainly in local authorities in those days will say the same thing. They were very dark. Um, we had to make very rapid, almost overnight changes, which lots of people resisted. So it was a real cultural shift, you know, in a very, very uh, swift, um, you know, very short period of time. And, you know, so so it was tricky. And I stayed... and I. While ever I thought I can make a positive contribution to this change and help make it less painful or less toxic, then I stayed. But by the time I'd got to, you know, cutting two thirds of my budget and people were starting to beg me not to put them into redundancy measures, you know, and there were grown people in front of me crying, the possibility of me helping seemed to just, you know, it. it so in the, in the end, I jumped because I just couldn't stand it anymore. And I mean. Uh, not to be over dramatic, but you know those moments where you sit in your office. I used to lock the office door sometimes and sit with my head in my hands, you know, with tears running down my face because I just couldn't bear. And you know, you could say that maybe I was too soft or too, I don't know, not ruthless enough, or you know. And it was a bit of the survival of the fittest, the fittest in the sense of who mm. c- who can tolerate that. But I I always thought, actually. This is damaging. Even if you think you can manage your way through this by being ruthless and and tough, you know there was this rhetoric of you've got to be hard and tough and strong. And I always thought, but this is going to—it's still going to damage you, even if you're not acknowledging it. You know, just the human cost of of those things. And they were, you know, they were impossible decisions. What do you cut? A, you know, a care facility or services to schools, or you know, they're not choices that anybody wants to make. So I d- I don't think. Anybody who was going through that t- those times kind of had any any satisfaction from it. Mm-hmm. So for me, it wasn't it wasn't much of a choice. It was like I have to go. And what happened to me was, um, and I can pinpoint it to this moment. I'd been doing the coaching masters, and we do, as you know, we do lots of practice in pairs. And I was working. There was a guy on the course who was, in my kind of judgmental way, I was thinking, oh, he's very corporate, and he'd come from a big solicitors firm. Um, and if I s- I see him occasionally now, and go, you're you're the reason I left. Because I'd been circling around him and, you know, we work in pairs and different pairs and we're encouraged to um, to kind of go and work with people he hadn't worked with. And I'd always given him a wide berth because I just thought, oh, he's a suit and he won't get me and I'm, you know, he'll judge me and all of these things. 
but I couldn't avoid him any longer, really. He was a nice guy. It wasn't anything personal. And uh, we had to do this exercise where we had to draw, um, visually draw out a, an ethical dilemma and then coach each other using using this visual aid. So to kind of talk through the drawing. And I'd drawn this picture, sort of like a flow diagram, and it had David Cameron with a big bloody axe. And, and I've still got the picture, and it had like blood drops kind of coming off the axe. And then... Um, there was a picture of me having to make choices between my team and the services and all of these things. Uh, so I've got this a stick figure picture of me with my arms around, around them. And uh, then it came to the ethical choice, which was do I... S- I've drawn a bike. I mean, I don't even ride a bike, but um, me heading for the hills or going round. And then the other choice was this guillotine coming down, like more cuts. And then and then the circle went round again. And so this guy was coaching me and he said, oh, what, what's this? And he pointed to these four little stick figures that I'd drawn, getting smaller in size. And I and I hadn't even known I'd drawn them. I mean, I, it shows how powerful those techniques are. And as I looked at them, I said, that's me diminishing as a person every time we go around these, these cuts. And then I just, my heart just went into my stomach. Oh my goodness, what, what on earth? You know, if you hear yourself saying yeah. those words. And I'd been talking to my husband on and off, going, oh, I must leave my job, I hate it. And he'd always said, no, you know, you've got to be sensible, the kids are little, you can't afford, we can't afford for you to leave, because uh, my wage was significant. Um, anyway, I went home and showed him this picture, and I said, I just can't, I just can't stand it anymore. And he said, no, okay, that's it. And so this was in, um, this was in October, the module, that I was doing this work on. And I went to the, on the Monday I went into work, and I'm, one of the teams I managed was the chief exec's kind of support team who were in his, and so he was in an office and they were in an office sort of before you got to his, like an antechamber sort of thing in the town hall. Um, and I knew I couldn't email him because the team would pick it up and then they'd panic. So I was going to email him, you know, it's not you, it's me, I need to go. So I had to handwrite him this letter. I mean, God, I'm laughing now, but it wasn't funny. Uh, and his name's John, so I had to write this dear John. <laughs> I'm really sorry, but I think I've got to go. And then push it under his door. And then, of course, I didn't hear from him for ages. So I was thinking, oh, God, has the cleaner picked it up? Or, uh, you know, I mean, it's black comedy. It's blackest, really. Uh, anyway, then I got, got called um, to go and see him. And had a co- and he was going, what can I do to make it, you know, to help you? Please stay. And, I just, and then I think he just saw in my eyes that I was just done. Uh, and he was very, very supportive. So I left at Christmas. So that was from October to Christmas. And I put my you know the money for my salary went into my model you had to keep modeling budget savings so i put my my money in uh you know the money for my salary and that was my kind of goodbye gift um and then left i had a big box of stuff and and left at christmas and then just set up so so it wasn't uh so as much as it was liberating and fabulous and life-changing it was also very traumatic i'd been there 10 years and i'd always you know i'd been in a job since i was 20 odd 21 you know, so that was a long, long time, and I turned fifty in November. So suddenly, I was this fifty-year-old out in the marketplace, with, you know, some skills such as they were, and then this newfound passion for coaching, um, and that was it. Really, that was kind of all I'd got in my knapsack was was that. Um, so it was, it was tough. You know, it was a tough time, but I'm glad I really glad I did it. And so you didn't diminish in size any longer. You, it, no. I, I kind of get the impression that a whole huge landscape opened up in front of you, and you. You're someone, it strikes me that you're someone who's come alive, is that? Oh, completely. I felt very, um, it, it's interesting when I look back, because I think if you'd asked me then, I would have, well, I wouldn't have seen that I was as repressed or 
suppressed, I guess. Um, so I always thought I was very outspoken and would say what I thought and all of those kinds of things. But looking back, I think I had a conception of myself as someone who served and who facilitated and helped things run smoothly and all of those. And I, you know, I still do that to some extent, but I wasn't flourishing. So my sense of creativity or agency or freedom um, or fun, like fun is really important to me, playfulness more than fun really. And so as soon as those those constraints of being in an organisation and routine and those sorts of things, as soon as they went, there was this big sort of freeing up and and gradually, I mean, it wasn't a sudden overnight thing, but gradually more creativity came into my practice. And now, uh, so I've just recently st- taken over leadership of the master's course. And that's great because suddenly I can do it any which way. And, and for me, as long as the students are coming out saying that they're having a rich, meaningful learning experience and they're getting what they need from it because, you know, most of them pay for it themselves. So that's important. The outcomes are really kind of paramount. But the, how we get there together feels very full of creative possibility and that just I mean it's just amazing it's great uh, and you describe yourself as a coach teacher thinker speaker and poet are those are those activities complementary or do they fight with one another for space in in your head and your diary there's a lot I mean that's listening to that back part of me is thinking I blame my brander and um, uh, who who is fabulous but um but she was very encouraging it was almost like coaching really she was saying no but you must you must have these things that you do because she said to me what do you do and I said well I do I'm a coach and I do a lot of public speaking and I, I think like I think I'm a thought leader and I do write poetry and she went right we're having all of those it's like no and I, I think they're um for me they don't fight against each other you know they um they're about I suppose the 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 thinker, speaker, poet bit of that is about having something to say. And for me, it's about example. It's not, um, I'm not holding myself up as a perfect example of how to do things. I mean, heaven forbid, because uh, I've made a million mistakes and I'll make lots more. Um, but there's something about, for me, there's something about, look, I've, I've, d- I've been there, I've done this, and I change things, and, and you can if you want to. So there's a kind of... Um, a story of hope. I hope. I hope there is a story of optimism in some of that, and the and the poetry is a fairly new thing um, that that I wasn't encouraged. I had a talent for it as a child and wasn't encouraged to do it for for quite a few reasons, and it wasn't seen as a legitimate activity. And then gradually, gradually, my voice has come back in that way, and so to be able to to write poetry, it just feels like a huge gift. And I went on a, a professional development coaching development day a couple of years ago now um and at the end uh, the woman who was running it said so let's all set an intention for the next six months because we were going to meet in six months time uh, so what are you all going to do between now and then what's your intention for yourself and I said I'm going to read a poem a day and so so that was two maybe over two years now and I have I've read more a poem a day and that seemed to free up my voice to to write poetry so so to rediscover something that I'd loved so much as a child in my 50s has been has just been fantastic so the poet of all of those coach teacher thinker blah blah the poet bit is the one I'm least like it's the one I'd love it's almost like I put it in there and see if it comes true (laughs) and also the words just sort of flow nicely but that's the one where I think that's that's what I would like to be when I grow up (laughs) the poet fantastic 
So uh, let me let me just uh, move on to Thinker then, because uh, a lot of your thinking seems to be going into a PhD at the moment. Is that right? And do you want to uh, tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, probably not as much as it should be. I'm the world's worst, officially the world's worst PhD student or researcher. Um, so my PhD, which changes, so anybody who's ever done one, you'll, you'll share my pain and horror. Uh, it's a very gruelling. Well, it's interesting. I was at um, a lecture last night, which was the inaugural lecture for a, a, a woman friend of mine who at 40 has just got her professorship. So hats off to her. And so so I was at the university uh, for, for that and there were just this bevy of pro- pro- lady professors who were all like under 50 and had quite a few people doing PhDs. And so my takeaway from that was... Um, it's the people with who are the least neurotic who just get on with it, who do well, and the people like me who just kind of t- torture themselves take ten years to do it. Um, so, so it's a tricky process. But the, so what 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 happened was I um, one of my gigs I got as a coach was a program down in Nottingham, which was European funded, to to encourage growth in the cultural sector through a number of interventions like workshops and training and skills you know skills uplift all those sorts of things and coaching uh, what they called coaching and so I got the gig as the business coach and was based in an art gallery so the idea was that somehow if if creative businesses could access coaching in a in one of their own environments they might they might be able to engage with it more readily and what what I found and what what I looked at in my master's research in my dissertation was that um, so if you imagine a spectrum of creative businesses from the kind of artisans where they have products and things that they can mm. sell or workshops almost manufacturing yeah exactly so they uh, you know it's still artistic but they've got a a thing uh, a commodity that they can put on the market and that with those people the the kind of linear models of coaching so what do you want to do I want to uh, you know uh, increase my you know I want to grow my business by X amount so you can quantify it and probably break it down into steps you need to do to get to that. So there's some some kind of pro- logical process about how you might coach that. So that was fine, although I still question that because I think underneath that there is still the confidence things and the beliefs about yourself that holds you back from doing the kind of straightforward things. Mm. But then at the... So that's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is the um, conceptual artists, the poets, the dancers, the, you know those people who aren't making a product who just found coaching so they found those linear models of coaching quite what well, I thought quite excluding and difficult to engage with so they'd feel like they'd not done it right or that they weren't being heard um, because the business coaches would be getting very frustrated and go well are you a, even a proper business what are your goals yeah exactly what are your goals and the conceptual artist goes I don't know just to you know just to think or to conceive I don't know to bring to birth this great art and so there was this kind of mismatch of language it's right you know I think that that thing about goals is really interesting so in my master's research I I wanted uh, because in the coaching literature there isn't anything about artists in coaching and there's certainly there's a little bits about the art of coaching but there are no artist voices actually speaking about their experience so it was a bit of an emancipatory piece really like let's go and ask people what they experienced in coaching so I did that and of course it raises more questions than it answers and some of those questions so then my supervisor um, who's this brilliant coach called Angelique Dutois fabulously uh, she said to me well I think you either need to write a book or do a PhD and like an idiot I thought oh I'll do the PhD Um, 
mainly because my dad always wanted me to be a doctor. And so I thought, well, I wasn't going to be a medical doctor, so maybe I could do that way, do it that way. So half jokingly, that's what I thought. And so the PhD was starting to look at, which is kind of moving on a little bit, but it was looking at, is there another form of coaching? Is there a new paradigm for coaching that could be more understanding of and accepting of and embracing of the artist experience? Because artists, it seems to me, right from childhood have all of these things said at them like you know get a proper job or you need you need a skill to fall back on or you know for older artists it's what success is if your work is bought you know so it's still being quantified in financial terms and not in the value of the art or the process of making the art and that does something to them so they're very fragile often um very beset by kind of notions of failure and success and judgment uh you know and it's a and part of the poetry of me writing poetry is to put myself in that position of being vulnerable so writing a poem and reading it out loud which I do now at conference is a real you know it's like an artistic act where you put go here's my thing it's really rubbish but you know don't laugh at me and that feeling and or feeling of being rejected which artists just know from day one that they put stuff out and then people go that's no good you know and and I think well in even if in our corporate lives we've written reports and done those things and and they may not go down well, but nobody rejects us that as explicitly as artists get rejected, where they're told this work isn't up to scratch and it and it just does something to people's psyche, I think. Mm. So so the research is to to work with them. So so now what I'm doing is trying to bring this this idea of poetry as a way of exploring the world as a reflective technique together with these questions about what's the artist experience like in coaching and so the next phase will be starting to to coach with people and then write poetry afterwards and then explore the poem with the with the artist so that's called poetic inquiry so that's that's the next phase for me but it's a bit it's a bit what's the word it's sort of tentative and you know exploratory and gently and I'm not doing it for you know I don't want to be a professor or, or any of those things I'm not aspiring to that so in a way, I feel like I've got the luxury of time that I can take a bit of time to explore this and enjoy enjoy the journey. So that's you're, what I meant. You're doing it for its own sake. Yeah, definitely. And because it's important as well, I think, so what I was saying earlier about values and wanting to make a lasting difference, this, this feels, so there's still a bit of that emancipatory piece in it for me that I can somehow by putting, um, what, what I hope is that by having a conversation about the possibilities for coaching with, with people people like artists a number of things I'm hoping that other co- coaches can go oh that yeah I see that I recognize that that's what I do or that's what I'd like to do and then it it widens access and it widens the models because there's been a dominance of a very certain sort of coaching for a long time and I think things are changing now because people recognize that life's more complex and leaders need something different mm. and want something different they're demanding something different so for me if I can take it to that furthest extreme of how might it be an artist uh, for artists and what if coaches were artists? What if we were creating and making, you know, how would that be? Then then within, you know, in that kind of s- stretching of the boundaries, if you like, or the description of what coaching might be, that within that we're making more room for different, more complex, more subtle kinds of work. So, so that's, you know, so it's got value in its own sake and I'm enjoying the process. I'm, I'm, I sound like I'm not enjoying the process, but I am honest, really. So you 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 resisted writing a book. Do you think it might develop into a book eventually, or or 
Or are you not that sort of person? I, I get the feeling that you let things emerge. Is that right? Yeah, I think, I don't know that I can sit still long enough to write a book, maybe. Um, it, uh, this is going to sound so pretentious, but I kind of think my art is my living and I like I really like living and being in it and then I, I'm one for moving on and going, yeah, cool. You know, so I don't look back a lot. Uh, and so, so maybe somebody else will write the book. But I'd, I'd love to do an exhibition or a you know I like those things where people get together I love collaboration so a collaborative thing where we fill fill a gallery with stories about coaching and I mean what really seduces me is all the artwork where I go that's coaching you know so there was um while I was doing my master's research I I was doing some coaching work with a number of agencies in um, Doncaster and it's I mean Doncaster's a pretty deprived town and so you get off the train and then you go through the shopping centre, uh, which is kind of the highlight of the town. Then you come out at the other side and it's re- you know it's pretty grim really. So I was I was making this journey once or twice a week and walking through the shopping centre and I saw um, these huge kind of I don't know five six feet tall picture photographs of people standing up. So they're kind of uh, full length portraits, and then each one had a, a kind of banner and it said things like. I want to see my children again or uh, I want to run 5K or one of them said I want Bowie back because he just died. And so there were all these things that people said they wanted and it was called the Desire Project. So it was an Arts Council funded project where the artist had um, put a call out. So I think he said meet outside McDonald's in the French Gate Centre and at such and such a time people had turned up and he'd taken these portraits of them and then said to them, what do you want? And then... So the art was that was just the, all this series of portraits with people's kind of answers to that question, and I thought, gosh, that could be coaching. I mean, is it how? And so it's in my master's dissertation. There was another one that was brilliant where um, this guy had opera singers. So people wrote in with their prob- a problem or an issue they'd got, and then he dispatched an opera singer to their house to who would listen to the problem, so that you know they go, I don't know, my son won't do his homework, or I don't know where to go in my career, or whatever. And then the opera singer would sing an aria back to them, and that would be their response. I just thought this is, you know, so that's the stuff I like. Like, who wants to sit and write a book when you could do that? So I think I might end up doing some sort of participatory art piece, Sounds <laughs> rather than write a book. <laughs> so we've we've alluded briefly to um, your your children so far in this interview. I know you've got uh, two lovely children. In fact, we've already heard very briefly from uh, one of them, Evan, who is 96-pack, who provides the introductory music to this podcast. With such a full uh, career, how have you found, you know, raising uh, your kids? How have you, you know, managed to maintain that balance? That's a good question. I'm smiling from ear to to ear, just even hearing his name said, um, to be honest, because I'm so proud of him. Well, I'm proud, really proud of both of them. So, how have I managed that balance? Well, it's it's tricky, as any parent knows. It's 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 hard. Um, I always, I I, I love being a parent. Really love motherhood. But I also love working. I am I'm a bit of a workaholic, and so it never it never even entered my mind that I might not do one or the other. And when the children were very little, I earned more than my partner, so it was kind of. You know, economically, I was always going to be the one that went and worked full time, and that's that's changed as as we've got older and the kids have got older. But 
but the family have always been immensely supportive of me. I think they're quite, um, there's a bit of a, oh God, what's she up to next sort of thing. But um, but I think they're very proud of me actually. So, so Such a cool mum. Oh, well, I don't, yeah, they wouldn't say that. They really wouldn't. No mums are cool, but no, they wouldn't say that, especially not when I go to um, to Evan's various raves and turn up at the front trying to dance and then, then really not cool at all. Um, no, I'm laughing a lot <laughs> at the thought of that. But but they're just, uh, you know, so they've, they've been very supportive and we, and, you know, Matt is, um, I was talking to some girlfriends earlier today, actually, about how much we hate it when our, our partners, who are all great, and then every everybody else goes, oh, isn't he good? You know, he's really great. Look how he d- how he helps. It's like no, actually, he's a parent as well. You know, they're co-parenting. So, so I think it was just you know, Matt is so my husband is so great that he would just he just did it because they're his kids and he loves them as much as I do. So, so it was always very evenly split. Um, and we there are some gendered things like he puts the bins out and you know, um, but but through all my studying and stuff, they were just so immensely supportive. And I think because they could see how much I was flourishing. And I, and I always justified it, whether rightly or wrongly, in that if they can see me out there doing the things that I want to do and trying to make a difference um, and, and living a values-led, purposeful life, that that's surely got to be a good role model for them. You know, even if it means sometimes I'm not, you know, sometimes I'm away or... And, I've, and we've managed to raise two really independent children who are very... Um, they're very purposeful and values led, and you know it's a pain in the backside sometimes because they won't be told anything. But then I won't be told anything, so and Matt won't be told anything. So we just, you know, the four of us are just kind of doing our own thing, really. But you must have some fascinating round the dinner table conversations, don't you, at home about? Yeah, if we can get them all round the table at the same time, you know how that goes. But um, yeah, th- th- it's fun and it's great because they're, you know, my daughter's 16 and uh, Bieber and Evan's 19. So he's not living at home now and she won't be for much longer. But it, but what I love is just seeing seeing them turn from children to young adults. It's just delicious to see what they think about the world. And, you know, and I think we're, we're you know, the planet, the world is in such a perilous situation i think it needs fresh energy and fresh you know and optimism and you know it needs some wise steady hands as well but i but i look i look at people like my my two youngsters and their friends and i just think you know the future's in their hands really and i just i i love to see the way they're trying to redefine things and uh, the, the things they're passionate about you know so the children school children going on strike i just think that it just really interests me how they're starting to take control into their own hands and I wonder what will come next. So yeah, so there are some really interesting conversations. Mm. Evan just talks about music. So, you know, that's if you're prepared to engage with that then it's fascinating and there's not much else at the moment. I detect that kind of you're you're hopeful for the future of the world. I don't know if I am or not. I've I I maybe not long term you know, I think some things are inevitable. I'm thinking about climate change a lot, mm. uh, and I think I, I suspect we've reached the tipping point. But I was I was thinking of um, oh gosh, I've forgotten his name. Uh, the uh, anyway, the guy who wrote uh, Love Lovelock. Anyway, it'll come to me. James Lovelock. Yes, James Lovelock. So when he wrote um, the guy, I see. Yeah, and then he wrote something subsequently, which I read in one of the papers, and he was talking about what in the war what happened after the phony war and how um there was a period of energy and 
you know, during the blitz and things that people mm-hmm. sort of now hear the cri- now the crisis is really here yeah. and that you go into this sort of flourishing of energy, even though the bad things happened, there's a response to it. And so this was written maybe 10 years ago when I read it, but that we've been in a phony war of it's not, you know, if we just put, put our hands in our ears, you know, our fingers in our ears, maybe it'll go away. But I think that time's passed. But I'm, but I'm partly, a part of me is thinking the human spirit and the human ability to adapt and create in the face of, of bad times. I'm hopeful in that, definitely. And I kind of think, because what will happen is uh, as we hit peak oil and, you know, resources start, start to diminish, is we will probably have to start making different choices. So already I can see people not, you know, we don't, we only run one car and I walk everywhere and, you know, so, and, and we're not kind of uber green or anything, but we're starting to make different choices and I can see that happening. So I've got this kind of utopian vision of of us growing our own things and, you know, being more thoughtful about the clothes that we wear and um, not being so disposable. And so there's a sort of comfort in that, that, that we, we can adapt, although maybe the planet's going to die or, you know, go into this kind of, you know, if you take a very long-term view, maybe it's going to go into a fallow period where humanity will die out. But actually, in the period of that, there may be some. Some, I suppose, I take a short, short-term view. I just think, well, what's what's real is the moment and here and being good to each other. I was talking to a, a friend who's a coach um, the other day, and I was saying my daughter's kind of gone a bit existential, bang on time for GCSEs, which is. <laughs> Which is a shame, but anyway, so she's questioning the whole point of everything at the moment. That's why she's at a little bit ahead of time, ahead of schedule. And my coach friend said to me, yeah, and she said, so I said to her, well, she's thinking about what's important and what, what it all means. And she said, well, it's only love, isn't it? That's all there is. And I thought, yeah, that, I agree with that. That's what there is. So it comes down to its most basics. Um, and I wonder if we'll go to a more simple way of life and that might be okay. Yeah, that vision sounds appealing to me. Yeah. Whether we'll be around to see it, Chris, I don't know. Okay, so what's next for you, Oriel? Uh, well, on a work on a work level, I've got a fantastic project coming up with British Council and DocFest, uh, which is a documentary film festival that happens here in Sheffield in June. Uh, and 15 artists are coming from an, across the world, so uh, Syria, Australia, I think. Uh, Siberia, you know, just people from everywhere and they're coming together and I'm going to run a few workshops for the British Council so that's going to be just a dream job, be fantastic Um, and then my other big thing that I'm going to do is I'm going to walk the half marathon in October to raise some money for St Luke's Hospice in Sheffield Uh, so they call it the Night Strider, you do it at midnight in the dark, so I've got my walking boots on uh, to build myself up to a 13 mile walk and raise loads of money because they looked after my dad so beautifully at the end of his life. So those are my two big projects. So, Oriel, this has been a fascinating discussion so far. Um, what advice would you pass on to aspiring leaders? Uh, well, number one, get a coach or a mentor, a good one, um, who's there for you in your side. Uh, I think take it steady would be one piece of advice. Like Take it at your own pace, reflect, don't rush, don't underestimate yourself which I did for a long time, and let other people underestimate me. I think definitely study if you can, if it floats your boat, because that will give you an access to a whole way, new ways of thinking about things that you can't quite get to on your own. Um, I think have your friends around you and people who care about you and probably give as much as you take or give more than you take. 
I heard a, a woman say the other day, an artist, um, that she gives more than she can afford to. And I really like that that generosity. And I think I don't do it with thought of reward, but I think if you can if you can give as you go, it's you know for me it's come back in in just in buckets. So the fact that my business took off from the beginning is because I'd always been very generous all the way through my career. So it's kind of like a business karma, I think. But I think just you know don't don't be jealous and proud with your resources and keep them to yourself. Share share your talents. And um, what's the book, podcast, or video that you'd recommend to aspiring leaders? Um, this is a bit of an off-the-wall choice, uh, but there's a beautiful book called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, and um, I just I just love it. I mean, it's a bit harrowing, I guess, but it's just the most... It's it's what I was saying before about love. So um, Viktor Frankl was an Austrian psychoanalyst um, who ended up in Auschwitz, and it's his account. And so in the most dreadful experience, you know, a situation, circumstances, where everything's just as dark and as terrible as it could be and he talks about humanity and love and and you know you sort of boil everything down and that's that's at his heart is what's important and for me it's when I read it it was quite a dark time of my life and it was just so comforting and inspiring it sounds weird that a book uh, about one man's story of the holocaust would would be beautiful and comforting but it's the most beautifully written book and I think if you're feeling kind of emotionally strong enough, read it. That's that's what I would recommend. Well, you've certainly given us plenty of food for thought on this uh, podcast, Oriel. Thanks ever so much for coming in. And thanks for listening to this edition of the Compassionate Leadership Interview. You can order Compassionate Leadership, the book, at www.compassionate-leadership.co.uk. This show was recorded at Rebel Base Media and the music was brought to you by 96 Back on CPU Records. Mm-hmm.